Acts 22, verse 22, through Acts 23, verse 10. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your own people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Morning, everybody. How are we doing? Man, I've loved, loved being with you already. What a, what a great time of lifting up our voices in song this morning, right? That was, that was, that was beautiful. Um, uh, so, interesting text this morning. I have a question for you to consider. Uh, what do these people have in common? Our Sisters of the Poor, Jack Phillips, David Carson, Hobby Lobby, and Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia. Now, you're probably like, I don't know any of those. I, what are you talking about? I totally lost. Some of you might, might have a clue what we're talking about here. Anybody, anybody want to venture a guess what, the, guess what those people or groups of people have in common in our culture right now? 
They all ended up in cases in front of the Supreme Court that were around the First Amendment, around the, the free exercise of their religious convictions and beliefs. And in all these cases, gained some kind of victory. Um, this is going to be a little bit different sermon than what I normally do up here a lot of times. Um, I, I'm going to ask you this morning for a few minutes to put on your thinking cap and think with me. I'm going to make some, some challenges this morning for us that has to do with the way we engage government and politics, which I normally kind of stay out of because I firmly believe that, that Genesis needs to be a safe place no matter what you're like. We need to be a place where no matter what your, your political convictions, we are in the gospel together. Yet, I think there are some issues that we need to be challenged to think about. And very specifically, as we get into the sermon this morning, what we're going to see is that Paul at a moment where he could have laid down his rights and accepted martyrdom, chose to exercise certain rights for a very specific cause. And I'm going to try to make a direct application to where we are in our moment uh, as the church in our culture. And, and I'll just lay it online. I believe that religious liberty is something that we should passionately believe in. And yes, we should seek to defend for all people. There it is. There's my purpose this morning. That, that this issue matters, and it matters, our, like when I say defend for all people, I mean very clearly that I believe that we should stand for the religious liberty of atheists and Muslims and Hindus and anybody else in our culture who hold totally opposing beliefs, that, uh, that our posture should be that we should stand for the rights of people to worship God and wrestle with God, that the freedom of conscience matters. And I believe this text actually leads us to that conclusion. So, so I'm teeing it up for you, okay? I'm letting you know what you think with me. And then we're going to give a very clear gospel why this is important at the end of this sermon. Because the flow of the text takes us there. And so I've piqued your in interest. I need to, to, to kind of get you ready to think about the text itself. Uh, we've got all these signs up here. And for those of you here last week, kind of... They, they, they just disappeared because you weren't thinking about them. But those of you walked in, weren't here last week, walked in, you were like, wait, what is going on here? Uh, is this what this church believes? If, like your first time, is this there? And, and the answer is no. But what we realize is that, that often we as a church, like there is a strange yet common moment for us at this point in time in our culture that we find that the faith in Jesus, the, the church of Jesus Christ has for a long time in our culture had a position of prominence and acceptance, yet we find ourselves more and more in a place where um, the, the, the ideas and values and, and things that come from the church are less acceptable. And some, in some places and spaces, we're even being told that when we hold religious convictions, the convictions we have as followers of Jesus Christ, okay, uh, that when we hold those convictions, the culture is now looking at us in places and saying, we want you excluded from the conversation and we want, you can believe what you want to in your church service. You cannot express those beliefs outside the walls of your worship gathering. Now that is not religious liberty, but that is what is being argued in some places. And it even showed up this week. What we just, Scott just led us in a prayer. Listen, we are, we want to have a gracious, compassionate, but convictional pro-life position as a church. And, and, and this week, a guy that I really respect, a guy named Tony Dungy, spoke at the National Right to Life, gave a five-minute speech 
There are people calling for his firing from ESPN because he would dare stand up and speak to this. He, he's a football commentator, longtime coach, is, is, is recognized and loved in the football community, and there are open and active calls for him to be removed because he would dare express something that is a, it, it actually is the expression of a conviction that Christians have held for 2,000 years because the truth of the matter is it was Christians who ended infanticide in the Roman Empire. Now, my point is that this is kind of where we're at. The tendency for our posture is then to do this, and that is not the Jesus posture. But, but we see in this crazy story of what Paul does, this beautiful moment of what it looks like to exercise his freedoms and rights in a way that opens the door for the gospel to keep being proclaimed. And that's the beauty of this text. So let me just tee it up and tell you where we're at in this story. Reading, if this is your first time with us, we'd like to preach straight through books of the Bible. We're in this amazing book of Acts, which is the story of the first 30 years of, of Christianity. In other words, Acts begins with the resurrection of Jesus, and it's, it's going to end about 30 years later with Paul ending up in Rome. That's where it's going. And in between, we start with 120 people in Jerusalem. And what happens is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the story of the resurrection, the beauty of the cross is proclaimed. Churches are planted all over the Roman Empire. And the gospel spreads at the first 30 years like wildfire. So we start with 120 people. And by the end of Acts, 30 years later, we literally have uh, the gospel going to every major city in what is modern-day Turkey, what is modern-day Greece, and it has reached Rome itself uh, in the Roman Empire. And, and now there are hundreds of thousands of believers and maybe more already in the, in the early Christian movement that is Christianity as people are believing the gospel. Meanwhile, they live in a culture where both the Jewish religious order and the Roman government itself is becoming more and more hostile towards the faith and the beliefs of Christians. And in the midst of this, this one guy, Paul, who starts off as a Jesus-hating, Christian-killing, Christian-arresting terrorist, Christ meets him and saves him. It's a beautiful story. You can go back and read it earlier in Acts. But Christ, this guy named Paul, comes to faith in Jesus. And for the previous 11 years to the moment we're talking about right now, he has been going around uh, what is modern-day Turkey and modern-day Greece, preaching Christ, planting churches. He has been on the offense and, and, and has had an unbelievable success as the gospel just keeps spreading from city to city to city. He keeps getting, getting beat up and, and harassed and persecuted, but he just gets up out of the dust and moves on to the next city. Yet, at the end of a third journey where he does this, he felt like the Lord, like, like Jesus himself, had told him, I need you to go to Jerusalem. And so he comes back to the city he, he grew up in, comes back to the city that is where the church began, comes back to the, the mother church of all of Christianity. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he starts proclaiming Jesus, but he's just interacting with the church there. He's asked by James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, to go do a religious ritual in the temple to show for Paul to show to the Jewish world, because everybody in Jerusalem are Jewish people except the Romans who are there to keep peace. We're going to get to them in a minute. Paul goes to the Jerusalem, uh, to the temple, the central place in Jerusalem, to uh, fulfill this duty, to do this religious ritual that was part of Judaism, to prove that he really was still faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the Old Testament. But when Paul shows up, some Jews who actually for, were from Asia, from the area that is modern-day Turkey, a city like Ephesus, 
showed up in the temple. They saw Paul, and they start a riot. And they start beating the living daylights out of Paul. And they have him on the ground. They're going to kill him. Their intention is to snuff Paul out. But from the tower that oversees, the Roman tower that oversees the temple grounds, a Roman uh, peacekeeping soldier, a police, basically a police officer representing Rome, sees what's going on down there, goes and tell, tells this guy who's the Roman tribune, we, he shows up at the tax, he is the highest ranking Roman official in the city at this point in time. He goes to tell them what's going on and they send a mass of soldiers into the complex. They pull Paul out of it and arrest him for getting beat up. How's that going, right? And as they arrest Paul for getting beat up, they then pull him up these steps. And last week what happened is Paul asked in Greek, turned and spoke Greek to the tribune, uh, treated him with respect and, and courtesy, but he, he, he asked for the permission to turn and speak to this crowd who had been beating him up. The tribune gives him permission to do that, hoping he will figure out why this crowd got so mad at him. And Paul shares his faith testimony, shares the story of how he came to faith in Jesus through seeing a light from heaven and the beautiful story of Paul's conversion. But he ends with this. He gets to the end. I don't actually don't think it was the end of what he intended to say, but it was the end of what he was able to say as he tells the people that the God of Abraham and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent Jesus in the world, now had sent him to the Gentiles. And that was when it was over. Because even though this is not a truth from the Old Testament, by this time in Jewish history, the Jews had believed that God loved them and nobody else. That the rest of the world was God's kindling, and that was why they were there. That God loves us, not so much you. And by the way, if you're in here and you're not a Jewish person, that's who we're talking about. And now Paul says, God's plan was for the salvation of the people who, who don't look like us, who don't worship, and they freak out. They start shouting out, and that's where our text picks up, is they start throwing dust in the air, this act of, of you know, anger, like I'd rather throw a rock at him, but I can't reach him with a rock, so I'm gonna throw dust. They're snorting, they're yelling, and they're saying, this guy, away with him. Now, if you read the whole story, you realize that's the exact words they say to Jesus about Jesus to Pilate. Do, do you want Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the terrorist, or Jesus released to you? And they say, release Barabbas away with him. Now they say this about Paul, away with him. He doesn't deserve to live. And now they get more angry, more riled up. So the, the tribune brings him in. And what happens in this chapter is that Paul is now going to end up standing before both the, the, the highest version of the Roman government in the city, and then he ends up in front of the highest version of the Hebrew or Jewish government in the city. He is before government authorities. That's why the connection, this sermon, is well, how do we relate to those in authority over us? How do we, as we're wrestling with how the gospel goes, when the, when the government itself is, is growing more hostile towards our faith, what is the posture? How do we interact with this? And so he ends up before this tribune and, and these centurions who are the police keeping and the ruling force in Jerusalem for Rome. Rome at this point in time had conquered the world. They, they had defeated, well, at least that, that area of the world, the Roman Empire. I don't need to explain the Roman Empire to most of you in here, right? They were bad. Like, like run you over, leave a lot of dead people, and then turn around and go, we'll give you peace if you don't fight anymore. 
they had created what was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which, which literally was a, a peace. Nobody's, nobody has the will to fight anymore. And so they were able to use terror to force peace. They used that peace to try to force uh, universal Roman thought. In other words, they were telling people that we want you to go to our, our temples, we want you to believe in our gods, we want you to follow our ways, we want you to do our education, like everything in this. They wanted everybody to embrace the Roman way of seeing the world, the Roman way of life. That was Rome. But, but when you have a guy like the tribune in a city, his highest calling is to preserve the peace. This is what they're all about. You're going to preserve the peace. Now, this is not peace because people come together, they're hugging and crying, oh, I love you, brother, we're back together. This is peace that is imposed with force. Yet, what they wanted to always make sure didn't happen were insurrections and riots. And we have a riot starting, and this guy's job is dependent on squashing it. So the whole text, this chapter, last chapter, this chapter, the next chapter, you see this tribune with one goal, and that is to figure out why these people are so ticked off at Paul that they would actually riot and try to kill him. And Paul ends up in front of this group, this man. This man then, after a few things happen, including Paul's exercise of his rights, takes Paul and puts him in front of this group called the Sanhedrin. It is a group of 70 Jewish uh, rulers from two different like subsects called the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees. And for today, I don't need to go into all the details. There's a little information showed in the text, but just understand this is two subgroups who have different theological and political convictions, but they, they get on this group called the Sanhedrin, and now they are 70 ruling el elders who function as the leadership of Israel. They are overseeing Israel, trying to rule Israel by the law of God, but they do have the right to uh, execute in some spaces and places, and they definitely have the right to say somebody deserves to die and throw them out in the street and they would get killed, is what happened with Stephen. And, and they are, are, are governing Israel. Israel can't have its own king because of Rome. They do have this ruling council, and their main priority is to try to force Israel uh, all the people of Israel to obey the Old Testament laws, to, to follow the rule of God, that we'll have a better society if all of us obey God. And if we all obey God, eventually God is going to come and overthrow Rome and make us the sitting power again. And so that is their ultimate motivation. And Paul ends up in front of these two groups. This is all Paul before governing authorities who are turning hostile. And this happens. This happens in culture, this happens in the world. So what we're dealing with is how do we collectively as our church, the church in America, or individuals when these situations arise, what should we do? And there is a bit of a model and some basic principles that come out of this. Now, what we see with Jesus is that Jesus ends up in the same situation and what he does is he just lays down his rights and goes willingly to the cross. And, and didn't Jesus say this? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, what's interesting is that 
we think all these are just people getting in a skirmish on the street. These are all statements about what, when Roman officials treat you this way, how do you respond? He says, listen, to go to one mile, they, a Roman soldier can make you pick up your pack, pick up his pack, and carry it for a mile. But by law, at the end of that mile, you put it down, you can scowl at him, don't say anything mean, but you can scowl at him and then curse him as you're leaving that moment. And Jesus is saying, when you get to the end of that mile, keep going. Go for a second mile. Freak the guy out. If they smack you in the cheek, don't, 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 don't grab this and fight. Turn the other cheek. Now, isn't that what we should do? Well, sometimes. Yet, it's not what Paul does. And, and I think Luke is trying to help us see something about interaction in these moments that is important. And so there are times. In fact, I would say that at any point in time, if it's just to protect myself and to keep myself from being persecuted and harassed, my posture ought to be like Jesus. Yet, Jesus went to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. If Paul dies in Jerusalem, his death is not going to pay a penalty for our sin. And so he understands that if he can exercise his rights and continue to preach the gospel, he can make it to Rome and make a difference there. He's opening door for the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And so what happens in the story is that Paul actually tells the Roman tri tribune that he's a Roman citizen. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And then the story unfolds from there. But what he's doing is he is actually, rather than turning the other cheek, he's looking at them going, I have rights. And you have violated them. And in that moment, it opens the door to certain things. And so I just want to talk to you about some basic truths that come from this story that lead us to what it looks like to interact when our, our posture, because the, we've kind of created a sub-series in this section. What happens in chapter 21 is that Paul gets arrested, and he will not be free in Acts again. We're going to get to the 28th chapter. We're going to have about four years of time, and Paul is still in chains under arrest, awaiting a trial that never shows up in Acts. So he's no longer on offense traveling around the world. Now he's defending himself and the gospel against the charges that are brought by people and government authorities. And, and, and I think this text helps us wrestle a little bit with what that looks like in the real world. And so, so what happens, first of all, there is a time to defend your rights. First principle, there is a, first truth, there is a time for us to defend our rights, for us to step into this space and with love and graciousness and courteousness, we see this all the way through with Paul, to say, listen, there are certain things that, that we should defend. And so what happens in the story is, is kind of crazy. Paul is pulled by the tribune, right? He's pulled out of the situation. He just spoke to the, to the Jewish crowd who beat him up, and now they're mad again. They're throwing dust in the air, and the tribune, afraid he's going to get beat, beat up and it's going to get worse, pulls him off the steps and into the barracks. It's this place called the Antonia Fortress, which is on, on just one side of the Jewish temple, and it was where the Roman, like the Roman police-keeping force, the Roman rulers would, would be during the, uh, when they were in Jerusalem there. They're protecting Jerusalem for Rome from this place. And Paul ends up in these barracks, and then I love the logic here. This, this is the logic of Rome, okay? They take Paul, and they go, he got beaten up. We want to know why he got beaten up. So what do they do? They take Paul, and they, they're about to whip him to find out why he got beaten up. Like, we're going to beat you to find out why you got beaten up. 
that's great. Like you, you ever see this with a kid? You're like, you, you, you know, your, your, your kids are in a fight and you grab the one who's kind of getting beaten up by the other kid. You bring them in and literally you're going to take them. You're going to start spanking them. Why did your brother get so mad at you? I know you did something to cause this, right? That's what's going on, right? We're going to spank the one who was getting beat up by their brother because we know if the brother was beating you up, you had to have done something, right? You ever do that as a parent, like that logic? I know, I know they wouldn't have done this to you unless you did something first. And that's the logic, but this is Roman logic. And so what they do is they tie Paul's wrists. Some scholars believe they took him maybe to the same scourging post that Jesus was taken to. They've got a whip that's got a leather strap that has a piece of glass or that, like, so when, when it's, he's getting whipped, it's going to leave wounds on his back. And they stretch him out. And at that moment, Paul looks over at the Roman centurion and goes, is it lawful, is it legal for you to whoop a Roman citizen without him being convicted and tried? Or tried and convicted? And, and you've got to read what's going on in text. The Roman centurion drops the whip, runs into the tribune who sent him out to do the whip and goes, hey man, this dude's a Roman citizen. And the tribune is like wetting himself. He, he knows he's in trouble and here's why. Roman citizenship was not something that was held by many people in the Roman Empire. Now, if you lived around Rome, yes. If you were a Roman, if you actually were from Rome, yes. And there were some cities in the Roman Empire that Rome would, would form a treaty with, and part of the treaty would be, we're going to make you a colony of Rome, and so that your free citizen, not slaves, but your free citizens, are now also going to be Roman uh, citizens. But most of the people in Rome, especially if you, like, they were very, at this point in time, there's going to be very few people in Jerusalem, very few Jews who are Roman citizens. To gain this citizenship, there were a couple things that you might do if you weren't in a Roman colony or from Rome. First of all, you could go fight and be part of the Roman um, uh, army, Roman forces. And if you fought in a battle that was bloody and terrible and you could have laid your lost your life, but you came out with your life intact, they would honor you for the, the valor in battle by, by granting Roman citizenship to slaves and other people. Or you could pay a lot of money in a bribe to a Roman uh, official. Uh, so only the wealthy are going to get here. And, and that bribe could put you the Roman official could grant you Roman citizenship. In fact, under the reign of Claudius, the emperor Claudius, this happened quite a bit, and it turned into a tax revenue flow back to Rome to build a bunch of stuff in Rome and keep Rome strong. They used the, right, the, the creation of Roman citizenship for people, something that happened to a lot of people. In fact, our current guy, who is the tribune, his, we find out later his name was Claudius Lysias. It's possible that his name Claudius was because the emperor Claudius was the benefactor that he paid off. Possible. And he took on his name because he was the benefactor who made him a citizen. But he tells Paul, listen, I, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. Paul then says, I was born a citizen, which means his parents, his grandparents, and we don't know why. It probably points to the fact that Paul probably came from a more wealthy family. He didn't, like he was born in a Roman, or a, 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 
a city that wasn't in Israel, that was over in modern-day uh, Turkey, uh, the city of Tarsus. But we don't know. But, it, but Paul says, I was born a citizen, yet he is a citizen. He's, he's got the papers. He's got the card. And, and so what would happen is we find out that Roman citizens had certain rights that every Roman official had to honor. They had the right to vote. They had the right of certain freedoms. Uh, a lot of the rights that, that we would call our Bill of Rights in our Constitution actually flow, flowed from some of the ideas that existed in ancient Rome. And the right to due process was a big thing, that, that we could not beat you, whip you, tie your hands together, put you on a post, execute you, a Roman citizen, without a, a, a trial uh, that was overseen by Romans, not by Jews, overseen by Romans, and a, a necessary conviction. In fact, to take that right away from somebody meant that the Roman official who stepped into that space and did this as a mistake could lose their position, could lose their citizenship, could lose their life. This is why what we see in a moment is all of a sudden, when Paul tells him this, this Roman tribune is terrified. He's afraid. Because he knows that he tied Paul up and plumb near had him whipped. If Paul, like, starts reporting this and making this known, his livelihood, his position, even his life could be in jeopardy for this. Now, he's still, he's still, he's still called to keep the peace. But, but what I want you to notice here is that Paul does drop the citizenship card. It's not the first time in Acts either. He did it in, in, in the, the, uh, chapter 16 when he was in Philippi, and they beat him up, throw him in prison, and the next morning after this amazing story where there's an earthquake and they're freed from prison, and the, the Roman jailer becomes a follower of Jesus because of that, the Roman jailer comes and says, hey, they've decided just to let you go free. And Paul says at that point in time, hey, man, I'm a Roman citizen. They did this publicly in front of the crowd and tried to shame me and shame my faith. They are not getting off that easy. And so now they, they take him in front of the, the, the um, Roman rulers in Philippi, and Paul says, Roman citizen, you're in trouble. And now the, the, the Roman rulers in Philippi are terrified of Paul. And what he basically does is he brokers a deal that leaves the church in a place where they can't mess with the church in the city anymore. He actually buys the free, he buys religious liberty for the early church is what he literally does by saying, I'll leave, but let the Christian faith remain. And he leaves, but, but he, he had done it before. And now again, should he have turned the other cheek? And I think Luke is telling us, no, that something else is going on here where Paul is doing uh, he is exercising his rights. He's exercising his freedom. But why? Well, first of all, I will tell you flat out, Paul's already said, I will go to Jerusalem. I, I know I probably will be arrested. I know I probably will suffer. And I am ready to even die for the gospel there if that's what God wants. So we know that Paul's motivation for standing up for his rights here is not in order to protect himself from persecution primarily. Now, I'm sure he's like, it'd be nice. I don't really want to get whooped. I don't really want to die here. Yet that's not the primary motivation, and I think we need to hear that. Jesus told us, listen, when we hold to the authentic Christian faith, the world around us is not going to understand our beliefs and will persecute us. And, and, and so we need to know that that is going to be part of the Christian witness here and around the world. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. 
Yet, I, I think there's, there's really three big things here that Paul is seeking to accomplish when he does this. And, and the first and the most important one is, that, or, or the, not the most important, the first one I have listed is he's pr- protecting and defending the church. He's, he, by, by standing up and, and, and defending his rights, he is putting the church, the larger church community in a position where, like especially in Philippi, where they are given a lot more freedom and comfort comfort and the ability to share the gospel in their city. This actually happened several times in Paul's journeys, where he does certain things in certain situations where he knows he's leaving, but the church is left in freedom so they can do their mission in their city without government harassment. This is why I'm saying we, we are moving from this text because the Roman Empire knows nothing of religious freedom, yet they, religious liberty, yet that is actually what Paul is defending in, in ways by his acts, okay? And, and so, so there is him uh, doing this for, to defend the church. The, the second and the biggest one is that Paul does this. He stands for religious liberty and his own rights and freedoms so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can continue to be proclaimed. And for him, this means eventually, we're going to see this in the story, that Paul is going to end up in front of the four most powerful Roman men in the Middle East at this point in time, and he's going to share Jesus with all of them. And then he's going to be sent to Rome to keep doing it. He is defending a a highway for the gospel, not a highway for his own comfort and his own freedom, his own, like, not being persecuted, but he is defending an open door for gospel proclamation. And third, I believe that he does this, but we'll find this in other places for sure. He is Fighting, standing up for his rights for love of neighbor. And I think for us, this is a big reason we need to do this. That, that these rights, especially this religious liberty is issue, means that we are loving our neighbors well when we actually say, listen, this right matters, and it matters for me. And if I have a Muslim neighbor, it matters for them. I'm loving them well that when Christians stand up for their rights and their rights alone but fail to love other people who think differently than them, we end up in a space that is more like Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin than we end up looking like Jesus and the gospel and the church. Okay? Now, I've laid the groundwork for my argument from the text. So let's talk about it. Let's, let's try to apply this very specifically with this idea of what it means for us to, in our culture and context, say, listen, we do have the right of religious liberty and we believe that that is something that we should seek to defend and articulate? Why should we look at these people who got all the way to the Supreme Court and, and, and we can have different discussions about whether a cake baker should cake, bake a cake or not? Or whether a certain person should be involved in this ceremony or not? But the basic argument is as a person in this world, do you have the right to, to look at your own religious convictions and to leave them and live them out in the larger society and culture and even openly proclaim them. And we ought to be standing up saying, yes. Yes, because the domain of the government should not have power over our conscience and our religious beliefs. This, this, is, 
This idea because of the influence of primarily at the time Protestant Christianity, although Catholic Christianity is now linked arms in this, was, was kind of the founding idea for, of so many people. And, and we end up with our First Amendment. You're familiar with it. I will read it. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution says, Congress shall make no law, uh, shall make no law uh, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, the press, the right of people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, there's a lot there, and I'm not going to stand up here and try to make the claim that our founding fathers were believers. That is a misnomer. Some were, some weren't, okay? We are not a Christian nation from this perspective that we were founded by all Christians. That, that is just not true. Yet, there is a sense in which a lot of people began to understand the relationship of, of the founding of this nation as it relates to England and began to look at other nations around the world and say there's something going on. As God has ordered society, there is a role for government. But whenever government pushes past that role, which left to itself, it always will, that that, that becomes a problem. And this right for people to... to to, to believe and assemble and, and worship and, and trust in the, in the way they see God. And for us, yes, that means believing in Jesus and proclaiming him, but that's not where everybody's at. Yet we should believe that this right is foundational and fundamental, and it should be something we stand, and we should even be asking even maybe our government to defend this in nations like North Korea where it's not even a thought. And, 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 and let's talk about why? What, what this means. Um, the Roman government in our current situation, as a secular world power, wanted to control every aspect of people's lives. They, they wanted to, to force their thought into every fiber of their being. And so what we have is Rome representing this one way of doing government. And it's not a good thing. It is not on any level a good thing when Rome has the power over conscience. We see this in the story of the Roman Empire. We see this in the story of all these, uh, in, in the USSR and the Soviet Union and in China and in places. It does not end up being a good thing where the government believes it has the right to look at people and go, we will force you to believe our national way of saying things. And so, the, like, our, our establishment clause, the first thing it does with the freedom of religion is it tells our government you cannot tell people what to believe and force people into a state-sanctioned church. That's a good thing. But it also, that door swings the other way where it says, and you also cannot get into people's hearts and heads and become the autocrat over the way people see the world and what they think and what they believe. And, and, that's, that's how, and, and it's looking at a government, every government, including ours, wants to be Rome. It doesn't just want to control, like, our, our government is founded on documents rather than a king and a ruler. But make no bones about it, every government in the world is seeking and striving to get to a place where it actually governs not just the affairs of men and women, but the thought and the way you see the world. And if left to itself, it will. And so, religious liberty, the fight for religious liberty stands up and says, that's not okay. This is not the way God designed it. It's God did never design government to overstep its space and to d dictate to people these things. But the flip side of this is we also have in this story Jerusalem. 
And Jerusalem, from a religious point of view, is saying, no, there is a right way to believe. And what we want to do is we want to force adherence to everybody to the right way to believe. And now they are forcing and using force. They killed Jesus over this. They stoned Stephen over this. They are ready to kill Paul because these people represented a threat to their religious worldview and their understanding of who God was, who they were, and how their kingdom could rise in the world. These people became a threat, and so the response was, we can't control what you're thinking and saying, we will get rid of you. And listen, our world is replete, is full of stories where the, the merger between government and religion has created a national religion that is pushing to say, here's our worldview, here's our belief system, you must believe this. And so it comes from a secular government, but it comes from governments that are religious. And so, like, we have uh, the Islamic State. We, we have stories like the Spanish Inquisition. But sadly, we also have in our history a lot of people who think and believe the same doctrines that we do. We have Calvin, John Calvin. I mean, people who call themselves Calvinists, he's the dude, right? Who begin burning Anabaptists at the stake because they won't accept his view of Protestant Christianity. And we have Martin Luther who, who turns on the Jews in his culture. Because anytime the church tries to step into this space of trying to govern along with the government, we end up being the guy. And the answer is religious liberty. To look at the church and go, listen, the answer is not us trying to seek a national state. So, so here's our moment. And hear me. I, I believe that there are places where this language is overstepped. But there is a crazy danger in the moment of some of the Christian nationalism that is showing up. And people who are talking about a theonomy, which is saying what the church ought to be doing is fighting for a national state that adheres to the laws of God. That never lands well because it does not work for either Rome to do this or Jerusalem to do this. And in the midst of this, what Paul does in this text is he looks at both and goes, you are not going to dictate for me the core issues in my faith. And I'm going to proclaim Jesus. That's what happens. That is this whole text is about is Paul looking at the Romans saying, I'm a citizen. You've overstepped your bounds. I'm going to keep proclaiming Jesus and looking to the, to the Jews here and doing the same thing. Now, uh, Believe it or not, I grew up Baptist, and we are part of Baptist networks in our faith. Believe it or not, it was Baptist folks who started this conversation in America. Everybody thinks Thomas Jefferson created the idea of the wall of separation of church and state, right? But believe it or not, he was quoting a guy named Roger Williams who founded the first Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island, the first Baptist church on American soil, and he was quoting him. Uh, Roger Williams actually was the first person to really push this idea into the American consciousness about 100 years before uh, Thomas Jefferson and started talking about this. Rhode Island was created as a state that had this as its foundational idea. And, and, and so what you have is, is this beginning, and all the way up till now, this tribe that I've grown up with has made some very clear statements. And I love this. This is a quote from what is called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And the Baptist faith and message is like a set of doctrinal beliefs that people who are in this tribe called Great Commission Baptist or Southern Baptist, this family of churches, believe. And this is just a statement from their, the belief statement in this document on religious liberty. And here's what he says. A free church and a free state 
is the Christian ideal. And this implies that the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the rights to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by civil power. This is what, what we believe. I think that's a good statement. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that every one of us needs to go and get involved with this fight up to our armpits? No. But it does mean that there are certain times and spaces where God does raise up certain people to stand up and say, this matters. And, and when you are that person, it is okay for you in some spaces and places to defend the rights that God gave us to a government that wants to overstep its bounds, whether that government is uh, motivated by religious convictions to try to, to, to force people into certain thinking and religious convictions, or an irreligious government that is trying to force people away from religious thinking. At every point, we should be standing up and saying, religious liberty, it matters, and we want to defend this. We want to stand for this and for ourselves. We want the gospel to be proclaimed out of love of neighbor, out of, out of, out of openness and, and protection of the people of God in our community, and out of the desire to, to see the gospel proclaimed. Okay? And, and so, there, there are several passages. Um, I'm not going to read them this morning. I could take you to where I think this, even Jesus actually in Mark chapter 12 verses 15 through 17, where he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. One of the claims he is making there is that you as a human being belong to God, not to the state. And, and so, so you have here this beautiful pressure and temptation. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the other two points, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit them very quickly and show you how they're in text. Show us how to live that out. Okay. That, that there are times for us to stand up and say, this matters, and, and it is a good thing for this to be something that is on our conscience, that we're paying attention to it in culture, we're praying for this, we, we are willing to, to, to speak out for this. And, and by the way, let, let me restate again with clarity, this does mean if, if in, in a situation where if there's a mosque or a Hindu temple being built and we see our government trying to stop it, we should be for the free exercise of religion for all people. And at this point, I know some of you are like, wait, this is crazy. You, no, we shouldn't. That, that's not right. Yes, let me tell you why we should. First of all, because if we won't stand for it for all people, we don't have a right to stand for it for ourselves. But second, and this is the most important thing, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe what Jesus said when he said the gates of hell will not prevail over Christ, his kingdom, and the gospel? Listen, the greatest place for the gospel to be proclaimed is in a culture where all the competing ideas are allowed with freedom. Whenever the church stands up and says, we want the gospel to be the only voice, we end up grabbing the sword and we end up doing things to people that harm the gospel. It, like, Every point in history where we have fought, where we said, let's, let's mix government with church, it ends up with people in the name of Christ grabbing a sword or a gun to force somebody else to believe what we believe. And you know, you'll never have a pure church. You will have people who believe because they're forced to believe. And the gospel will, will, will start to get lost underneath that. Yet, 
in a culture where people are free to wrestle with this and the gospel is proclaimed, we have been promised by our Savior. It can't be stopped. I believe in religious liberty because I believe in a culture where all the ideas are given a voice. The gospel will always rise to the top because Christ is the true king of this universe. And so, yes, they build a mosque. We should fight for the freedom for people to do that so that they don't try to restrict our freedoms as well. Yet, I believe that in the free exchange of ideas at the end of the day, our message is the one that will have the final say. And so what Paul does in the story is that he, he stands before the tribune. He does not treat him with contempt. He doesn't turn him in. He does exercise his rights, right? The tribune goes, I still got to find out what happened. So he sets up a short, what, what is kind of like a, an arraignment in front of the Sanhedrin. He's, he, I want to find out why they're so upset. And he brings them in, and Paul addresses the, um, the Sanhedrin. And a couple things happen, just real quick. First of all, Paul starts by saying, I have a clean conscience. This is his way of looking at the Jewish Sanhedrin and say, I follow Jesus, and the following of Jesus has led to the ultimate fulfillment of my Jewishness. It offends the high priest who says, backhand that boy, and he gets backhanded. And the, the second principle I will tell you is that there are times to speak to prophetically to, to authority, but never a time to disrespect authority. So what happens is he's backhanded, and now we have a live verse. Look, look real quick at uh, chapter 23, verse, um, uh, let's see, verse 3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. How many of y'all want that on a plaque in your room, right? I got a quote. Now, now, what he says is because he's a whitewashed wall is a picture of a wall that is falling apart, crumbling, and rotting, but they put this lime over it to make it look good. And he's saying, This is you. He is actually quoting something that Jesus said that was very similar. And, and, and he, he responds. Commentators have difference of opinion over whether his response was okay or not. But when he finds out that the person he was actually speaking to was the high priest, he changes his tune. But he doesn't change what he said. You're a whitewashed wall because you were judging me by the law, but you were not obeying the very law. They were holding, like, backhanding him like this was illegal in, in Jewish legal proceedings. And so here's the high priest who represents the highest, like the... The, the chief justice who is violating the very law he's trying to hold Paul to. This becomes the problem that is in the gospel. We'll never fulfill it, yet Paul speaks prophetically to him, yet when he finds out he's the high priest, his response is to look at him and say, oh, I didn't know that was who you were. Your position deserves my respect. You may not. Your position does. And I'm just telling you that he is, he's picturing for us how we do this. Listen, to be people who, when, the, when my guy is in office, I want him to be respected, but when somebody else is in office on the other side, I've heard people who argued for certain candidates that the way the culture talks about them is terrible, but when the other person was in office, they used the same kind of rhetoric and nonsense to speak about our government officials. It shouldn't happen with Christians. There's a respect for the people who have authority over us that ought to show up in our mouths, even if we are speaking prophetically against the way they do their governance. 
That's the right way to do it. And the third thing we see, Paul, is that ultimately the resurrection is all that matters. Um, when he realizes he's in this room where these two tribes and one group believes in the resurrection, the other doesn't, he throws the resurrection on the table. But what's central here is to understand that he, is, he initially was being charged was causing a problem in the temple. And Paul is finally said, hey, Roman Tribune, I want you to know this. I want you, 70 people in this room, to know. Here's why I'm on trial. I'm trial because I am proclaiming that you killed a man and he rose again. Christ is alive. I'm preaching the resurrection. And at the end of the day, if we're persecuted, let's make sure it's for that. Let's make sure that as we stand up for our rights, which there are times we should. It's been my argument. Like I said, different sermon, but there are times where we as the church just stand up and say this. Our main message and what we want to be known for and what we want to proclaim is Christ risen. We want that message to get out. So there are places in our culture that, that people of faith get responses like this. And the reason people respond is because they knew Christians who were hateful. They knew Christians who were mean-spirited. They knew Christians who were judgmental. They knew Christians who stood for things that, that weren't quite as important. And at that point, we ought to go, yes, that's not what we want to be known for. But if we're going to be persecuted for making much of Jesus, bring it on. Bring it on. We will not back down. We are going to proclaim Christ. And if we end up in a totalitistic regime, like the Soviet Union, or an Islamic state, we are preaching Christ resurrected. Because it is the hope for us and the whole world. That's what happens in this text. And the application is that, that we have a right and, and, and the call as citizens to make much of Jesus in the world. Now, I'm, I'm, my argument has been one way we do that is by defending religious liberty. I believe that. But that's so that the resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom of Christ can be known in our culture. And if we fight for our rights but never get to telling the people about Jesus, we're missing the boat. We need to make much of Jesus. And so we close our service today with a time of communion. It is our opportunity for us as a church body. John's going to come up here, the band's going to come up here, and we're going to sing. And it's our chance as a church body to pause and be reminded that the Roman government and cahoots with, with the Jewish religious leaders, the same two teams, conspired together to crucify Christ. Yet he went to the cross for our sin. But three days later, Jesus rose again, and he is the king of a better kingdom, and that we are ultimately subjects of that kingdom. And for those of you who are here who are followers of Christ, this is your chance to just be reminded of the beauty of the cross, the glory of the gospel, and the wonder of the resurrection as you come to the table again. And for the rest, if you were here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, in fact, I may have freaked you out. I would love to have a cup of coffee and have further conversation with this, but what I want you to do is I want you to see the beauty of Jesus today. And so consider the gospel today. Consider that Christ died for you. And if you have questions, if you have issues, uh, or you just need prayer this morning, at the end of our service, we'll have people over here at my right by those speakers over there who would love to pray with you. If you want to learn what it means to become a follower of Jesus, we, we will give you an opportunity to do that this morning. John, come lead us in our time of communion this morning.